Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where we interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work that they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. Welcome back, folks. It's been a while. I hope all of you have been enjoying the newfound freedom and magnetizing effects brought about by the COVID-19 vaccines. As for me, well, I'm currently knee-deep into the LPC, and while I find company procedure plans and land registry searches exhilarating, I do certainly miss the 45-second commute from my bed to my desk, as opposed to the now 45-minute London rush hour stampede to university every day. Now, legal tea. Well, doing sequels is always a scary thing. Where do you go from season one? I mean, we've done sports law, we've gone to space, we've talked about cannabis, and we've discovered animal rights protection. Where else does one go? Well, that's a question that we here at Legal Tea have had a lot of time to think over as we plan out our new season. And I'm excited. Why? Well, because with season two, we're not only bringing you plenty of new exciting practice areas and organizations to explore, but also bringing you some new types of episodes. In between episodes, if you will as we try to broaden up the conversation from graduate career paths to more general matters facing the legal industry as a whole. For this week, we'll be exploring the world of the Crown Prosecution Service with Jade Zola Sodipo, a barrister at the CPS. In the episode, we discuss what the CPS is and its mandate, how COVID has affected the CPS's work and the programs it has in development, as well as addressing the bad guy persona thrown at the prosecution in the media from time to time. Aside from the CPS, we discuss about the struggles of obtaining a pupillage, coming from a non-Russell Group university, as well as the social mobility within the profession today. Now, without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. Morning, Jade. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. Now, we've got a lot to talk about, but yep. before we jump in, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Uh, so my name is Jade Sudipo, and I'm currently a Crown Prosecutor at the Crown Prosecution Service. Um, I started my training, which is called Pupillage, with them in March 2020. So I've just finished this year, March 2021, um, as a pupil barrister, and now I'm a fully qualified uh, employed barrister and Crown Prosecutor with them. For those of us that don't know, what is the Crown Prosecution? What is it that the CPS does? Um, So the Crown Prosecution Service is a part of the civil service. So the civil service is a really big uh, department. And um, as a CPS barrister, what you will do um, is that you will look at all of the cases that come through the police system and you will review them depending on your particular role. Um, You review them from pre-charge stage, which is where police give you the evidence and you make a decision as to whether you agree with the charges and whether they have permission to charge that person. Um, You can then review it all the way up until it gets to the trial, up until it gets to sentence. And um, if you're an advocate, then you will um, deal with these cases in court. So you will deal with guilty pleas, not guilty pleas, case management, sentence hearings, trials um, and all sorts of stuff. So there's a variety of things that we do, but we mainly prosecute um, criminal offences that come through the police. So 
as a barrister, obviously, kind of you handled a lot of the advocacy and the, and the case handling. And you said your training started in, in March 2020. So essentially, you've done your training during the pandemic. What was that like? You know, uh, how did that affect things? How how did it change? How did the CPS as an organization? Because, you know, even though the country went on lockdown, obviously, the prosecution service doesn't rest. <laughs> No, it didn't rest at all. It probably got a lot busier. <laughs> um, starting my training during the pandemic, it was it was hard because um, I literally started the day before we went into lockdown. So I was in the office for the first day, met my supervisor, and then I was working from home until I think September of last year. It was definitely different because I wasn't able to meet people in person or face to face. So a lot of the contacts I was having with all of my other colleagues was through um, meetings over Zoom and over Teams. So I didn't really get to meet anyone. It was definitely different because what they really like is for you to go into court and see what it's like, um, to see how the courtroom feels, to get a feel of what you will be doing once you're on your feet per se, and um, to just be able to interact with the people that you're going to work with on a daily basis. So because I wasn't able to do that, it was very, very different. They did try their hardest to make sure that even though I was out of court, I was still getting the right training. So I did a lot of review work. Um, So I did a lot of case reviews from the initial stages, um, knowing how to look at the evidence, knowing how to, for instance, raise action plans with the police um, and doing all types of written advocacy, which is still quite important. They did adapt as best as they can, which I really do appreciate by doing a lot of remote hearings through what's called the Cloud Video Platform and CVP. And it's like a Zoom meeting or a Teams meeting where you can just join into the court through video camera. So you can still see and hear the court through camera. You'll be at home or in your office or wherever you are. And um, you can still hear the proceedings and see the proceedings happen. So we were fortunate enough that I was still able to shadow by a CBP and I was still able to conduct some advocacy through CBP. So it was it was definitely different, but I, I do feel that they adapted the best that they could to make sure that everybody was still getting the best training that they could get. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. I mean, obviously, since all of this was unplanned, I mean, your first day you're in the office and then suddenly they tell you you've got to stay stay at home and work from home till September. <laughs> yes. So how were these CVPs? Like, what's what's that like? Because I'm, I'm assuming kind of before you started your pupillage, you, you would have attended kind of a court hearing and, and the like. What, what was CVP like? Was it much different? Was it, was it a bit weird seeing judges over uh, their webcams instead of, you know, in the high seat? I think it was weird at first, just because maybe when you first start out, you do always picture yourself being physically in the courtroom. And, you know, if even if you're at university and you do like mock trials, you obviously do it in in classrooms and in person. So you're obviously used to having that perception that you will be physically in the courtroom. I think the first few times I shadowed, it was a bit it was very different because I did see judges literally in their bedroom, (laughs) like (laughs) in their lounges with like pictures in the background and all sorts of things. And it it was very different to what I thought. But I think it was very nice because you you do get to see that they're just ordinary people. So it really did break down some barriers, just seeing everybody in their natural habitat. So it was it was really refreshing to just see that everybody is a normal person. And I am a fan of CVP because I do think that there are some hearings that you just don't need to be in court for. It just makes it a lot quicker. You can get through things a lot faster. We sometimes have defendants who are not living in London. So if the if defendants live outside of the country and they can't I mean outside of London and they can't make it, it's really accessible for them to be able to just get there and get the hearing done, other than just adjourning it to another day for them to come and they may not come and all things happen. 
So I'm actually a really big fan of CVP. The only thing I don't like, or not not like I don't like, is that as a prosecutor, I'm in court from nine till four or five or longer. And sometimes when you prosecute a whole list through CVP, you, you really have to spend the whole day looking at the screen, making sure your internet connection is stable, making sure that you can hear the court and the court can hear you. So it, it can sometimes get a bit clumsy if, for instance, you lose connection or you can't hear or someone can't hear you. But apart from that, it does overall work really well. So, you know, we see there's the, the, the Zoom fatigue there. You, you wouldn't want to spend the rest of your life doing doing CVP. But um, yeah. considering all these reports of, of the huge backlog of cases, particularly criminal cases, are there any plans? Is the CPS or, I don't know, the, the court system or the UK government indicated any future long stay for, for the CVP? Or do you think once we all get jabbed and back to normal, it's it's back to the courtrooms nine to five and dragging people from all other parts of the country to, to show up to court? I, I actually don't know. I personally thought CVP was here to stay. And that was because you could really tell that there were a lot of lawyers who just didn't want to come into courtroom for hearings that they just didn't need to be there for. There were some hearings, for instance, that were literally only five minutes and it was a waste of their time, unfortunately, just having to come in from the office or or, or et cetera, et cetera, to be there. I don't know if it's true, but I've heard that the government are trying to go away from CVP and are trying to bring back in-person hearings. Um, And that's because there are actually a lot of judges who don't like CVP as much as lawyers do. And that's because of things like connectivity issues, not being able to hear someone, the link doesn't work um, and all of those types of things. If we need to fill out forms, some judges prefer a paper form um, rather than an electronic version. So there are a lot of judges who don't like CVP and I know they're very in favour of in-person hearings. I have heard that the government are trying to make sure that in-person hearings are the norm um, as soon as things go back to normal. So it's very, very much dependent. I think CVP will stay in the sense that if there is a lawyer who has a genuine reason as to why they can't make it in person, for instance, there is a sickness or they are shielding or they are just a bit too far, then they will be able to do it through CVP. But I just I I think it won't be as normalized as it is now. And they are going to fight for in-person hearings a lot more. Oh, well, I mean, you can't you can't win all the battles. Exactly. But as you were saying, uh, you know, crime crime hasn't rested during the pandemic, and, and I'm guessing the CPS hasn't either when it comes to kind of tackling crime. So in our previous discussions, we've talked about, you know, the Rasso program, hate crimes and cyber crimes. Would you mind telling the audience a bit as to kind of, you know, these CPS initiatives uh, in, in some detail and, and what they're about? Yeah. So um, as part of the CPS, there are, for instance, different departments. Um, We have like a general area department, which deals with kind of everything like drugs and driving offences, drug offences, battery offences or violent offences. There are teams who specialise in things like um, rape and serious sexual offences. And that's the RASO department. And they are RASO qualified and trained lawyers who deal with um, rape and serious sexual offences, like very serious sexual assaults, um, historic cases of um, rape child sex offences. And um, I think last year there was a very big um, CPS initiative into how we deal with those kinds of cases, how they are investigated, how we can ensure that the evidence um, is there and ready for trial, and what the police need to do to make sure that we get the evidence um, as swiftly as possible, how we interact with victims and witnesses to ensure that they're kept up to date um, at all stages of the process. And I think it's because there has been a lot of things in the media about how rape and sexual offences 
crack, unfortunately, how the evidence just isn't as strong as we would like it for a trial purpose. Not that the evidence isn't there, but sometimes we have to remember that in terms of the law and making sure it's very concrete for trial, everything has to be in like tip top shape. So I think there's been a, a very big initiative in making sure that the evidence is there, how we deal with our victims, witnesses, how we ensure that they are ready to give evidence, to ensure that the police give us all the evidence that we need and in a timely manner. One thing that, that was always been said is that things take ages to investigate and by the time the investigation is done, witnesses might not actually be as um, willing to cooperate anymore. So we want to make sure that everything's done in a timely manner. Um, And the same thing with hate crime. The CPS is now really, really big on um, what we classify as hate crime. So that could be things like um, religious, religiously and racially aggravated offences, um, such as, for instance, if somebody was to call someone um, a racially aggravated word whilst they, for instance, push them, that would be a racially aggravated you know, public order offence. Or if they were to yell out a racially aggravated word at someone, that could be a racially aggravated um, assault, etc., etc. And... Our initiative is that where it is a racially aggravated offence, we're less likely to stop the proceedings because it's in the public interest to proceed with them. Um, And what we ask for is an uplifting sentence. So if it was, for instance, like a basic common assault, they might get like a a fine of like £500 or whatever, depending on the seriousness. If it's a racially aggravated uh, common assault, we would ask for an uplifting sentence. So we would ask the judge to announce that it's racially aggravated. And then he would, for instance, increase the fine to like £750. So we ask for uplifting sentences. We as well make sure that the evidence is there. So we want evidence of what was said, who heard it, how that person felt as a result of what was said, etc., etc. So hate crime is a really, really big thing. And um, cybercrime as well is very much increasing. <laughs> um, there's been a lot of crime that's been done over social media, um, using um, technology to facilitate their crimes. And we're trying to bust down on that. So I think I did a case yesterday that had to do with drug importation and something called EncroChat, which I'd never heard of. But apparently it's a very sophisticated thing where they could import drugs all over the world. And the police have, I think it was like a technology that the police couldn't really trace or something like that. So I think there's these really big operations that are going on so the police can bust these kind of cyber crimes um, <laughs> as much as possible. Um, cyber crime isn't my best spot, so it's probably not the best description of the operation, but it, that, that's the kind of thing that they're now looking to increase is big operations on things that um, use technology to try and evade capture. No, that, that's amazing, kind of, you know, the fact that you have all these things going on. But one of the things that, that draws them all together, which I, I find quite interesting, is... This emphasis on on procedure, evidence, making sure that you're getting everything right, everything's by the book. Because at least, you know, my perception of prosecutors, uh, I must confess, is from what I've seen on the telly. And uh, usually there, the perception given to prosecutors is, you know, got to get that conviction rate up, you know, the ends justify the means. Uh, you know, the prosecutors typically seem like the bad guys. Do you think that's a fair portrayal? I'm guessing not. And and why do you think there's that that portrayal in the media of of the prosecution? Um, I think there's that portrayal because I think that's just unfortunately how we've been led. I think a lot of people think that because we're an organisation, we really just care about things like statistics and we really just want to tick convictions off our lists and we just want to seem as if our prosecution rate is high, which, I mean, there is an element of statistics. We do want to see 
if convictions are falling, why are they can fall and why are they falling? You know, what's going wrong? Is there something that we could do better? But I think obviously now working with the CPS, it's really important to understand that we don't just want to secure convictions. We just want to make sure that justice is being done and that we're supporting victims and witnesses. And a large part of our role is to ensure that the evidence actually stacks up, um, the offence is actually made out and that this is actually a correct um, um, charge. So, for instance, I have to review the evidence and if I don't think that an offence is made out, then I don't have to continue with the proceedings. Um, That's why cases are reviewed at every step of the way, pre-charge, post-charge and once they get to trial. There are times where a lawyer has, you know, authorised a charge and, you know, another lawyer looks at it and thinks, well, I don't really think this offence is made out, so I'm not going to continue with the proceedings. Or there have been times where it gets to trial and another lawyer looks at it and we're kind of like, we don't think this is, this is actually sufficient enough to go to trial. So, of course, we do care about convictions because that's, you know, the nature of our job. But we're also really, really fair and impartial. And it's not just about securing convictions. We're just making sure the evidence is there and it's fair. If we don't think something is made out, then we won't necessarily proceed with it. We have a right to just make sure that everything is laid out in a very fair and impartial manner. So I hope that the perception, once people experience the CPS more, is that we don't just want to convict people, but we just have an ongoing duty to make sure that the evidence is presented in a fair manner. Well, hopefully people experience CPS the right way, i.e. kind of not being charged. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get down to it. What does your day-to-day look like currently as as a barrister? Ignoring kind of the the CVP, more kind of generally what type of cases do you work on? Just give the audience what, uh, what does a day in the life look like for you? So a day for me um, in my specific CPS area is that I'm in court five days a week. Um, So I'm in court back to back. Um, I deal with anything that comes into the courtroom, really and truly. So there's different kinds of courts that we have and they're called gap courts. That's a, a guilty anticipated plea court. So that's where people should plead guilty. Um, we also have NGAP courts, which is a not guilty anticipated plea. So that's where people are likely to plead not guilty to the offence. Um, we have remand courts where people are arrested overnight and they're brought into the next available courtroom. Or if they've breached bail conditions, they have to be brought before a court within 24 hours. Um, and people who are in custody. And then we have um, trial courts. So there's all the co- uh, cases listed for trial. And um, I'm in court five days a week. and I don't, unfortunately, always get notice of what I'm doing. So the day before court, I will get a list of cases that I have to deal with. And then I will just basically go and deal with it the next day. So it could be, you know, sentence hearings. It could be case management. It could be legal applications like bad character, which is where the prosecution wants to reduce um, the defendant's previous convictions, depending if a legal test is met things like special measures if a witness for instance wants screens from the defendant or like a live link because of reasons um, that they've given so those are the different things that I specifically do is I advocate every single day predominantly in the magistrates court is where I'm at so I will be at different magistrates courts across uh, South London presenting all of these cases. What's that like waking up every day and, and not really knowing what, what, what today's going to be look like? Do, do you like that kind of impromptu <laughs> style of advocacy? <laughs> I, do you know what? I, I, I don't. I have to be honest. I don't only because my personality is, is someone that I really want to know what I'm doing. I really like being prepared and I want to go in knowing that I, I know what's going to happen. 
And with this profession, that's just not the case. <laughs> you really don't know what's going to happen. You think somebody will plead guilty and they don't. You think somebody will be not guilty and they do. You think there will be a trial and they don't show up. Um, there might be a trial where you're ready, but then the defence counsel raises, you know, abuse of process, wasted costs. And you have to react to all of these kind of things. You just really don't know what's going to happen. And I suppose as much as I don't like it, because I really don't like being, <laughs> I really don't like not being prepared. It really does make you think on your feet a lot more and it puts a lot of confidence in yourself because you have to make these decisions on, on your feet. Of course, you can always take instructions and you can always consult with a colleague. But when, once you're physically in the courtroom and there is a judge asking you all of these questions, you just have to adapt to the situation. And I think it really teaches you that you just can't be prepared for everything. You just have to go with the flow. I would absolutely personally love to know what I'm doing and what's going into my courtroom and to just have a bit of a, a plan. You just unfortunately don't. <laughs> um, and you, and you, do, you do deal with it better. and you will eventually get used to it. And there are some times, to be perfectly honest, where you do have advance notice of what you're doing, which is always great. <laughs> um, and those lucky days that I have, I am I really do like. But obviously it means a lot of work into the evenings, for instance, just to make sure that everything is obviously polished and correct. So it is, it is a bit of a balancing act. And so what type of cases do you, do you deal with? You know, you've got gap and gap, you've got trials, you've got remand. Are they all on kind of different different crimes or do you specialize in, in a particular area of crime? So for me right now, I do all sorts of crime. Um, so for instance, in a gap call, which is the guilty anticipated plea, they're normally low level offenses such as possession of drugs. So like possession of cocaine, possession of cannabis, um, possession of heroin, drink driving. So driving with excess alcohol in your system, drug driving, which is just driving with an excess drug in your system. Um, things like a low level shop theft. So someone who's stolen maybe a packet of meat from Tesco's or Marks and Spencer's. Things like battery. If someone's pushed someone, that's um, what we call a battery because they've applied force onto someone. So you could deal with low level offences like that. Um, in a not guilty anticipated plea, um, they're a bit more serious. So it could, again, just be simple things like drug driving, drink driving, where they've just said, it's not me, or they've said, I don't believe that that much was in my system. Um, it could be more serious things like um, actual bodily harm. Um, so that could be, you know, where someone's punched someone to the point where their tooth has fallen out, or they've punched someone to the point where they've had a bloody nose and they've had to go to hospital and they've got long-lasting injuries. Um, I think I've dealt with sexual offences in the NGAP court so that's child sexual offences, historic rape offences from, you know, the 1960s or the 1970s. And you can deal with those sorts of things in that kind of court. In a remand court, you deal with anything and everything that comes your way because you just don't know what's going to happen in that court because they've only just been arrested and then they're brought before the court. So you could, for instance, deal with um, a first hearing for a murder case that gets sent straight to the Crown Court, but you deal with it first in the magistrate's court. You could deal with things like um, ABH, again, actual bodily harm, sexual assault, rape if it's brought into your court. Um, so you deal with everything and everything, all types of crime from literally low-level petty crimes to quite serious offences and you deal with the whole spectrum so it does give you a really good range of things to deal with. Quite the cocktail. So yeah. are you, do you memorise all these criminal statutes in your mind? Because especially if you're not given a lot of notice, how do you how do you deal with that? You know, not only of the variety of you know what case you're getting but also the type of crime that you're going to get. 
I think over time, I've learned to memorize certain <laughs> types of things. So things that I deal with, for instance, quite a lot when I first started out, especially was things like possession of drugs, drink driving, battery offenses. Because they're quite low level and you will deal with them a lot more in the magistrate's court, those things I've memorized very, very well, like the sentencing guidelines, what the legal elements are, what we need to prove, what the defense needs to, for instance, provide us with, what issues could be. Those kind of things I've memorized very well just because you deal with it a lot more often, so you get more used to it. Things that are a bit more serious or more technical. So, for instance, a drug driving case is simple-ish, um, but if they dispute certain things, then we have to get what's called expert reports, and they're a bit more technical to deal with. Those are the sorts of things that I won't deal with a lot just because they're very technical and those things I have to research a bit more in depth. I will never remember it perfectly, but um, the more I deal with it, the more things I can remember at certain times. And there are things that I hardly ever deal with. So I don't really, for instance, deal with things like fraud because they just don't get put into my courtroom that much. Therefore, I don't know much about it. I, I wouldn't remember the law as much. So it just requires that extra bit of research before the case is brought into court or to be honest while the case is being heard <laughs> it's not unfamiliar for us to literally be researching the law as the case is being brought into court I had a case last week that was breach of a civil injunction order I've never heard of that I don't know <laughs> what that is and the judge was questioning whether the police had the accurate powers to arrest a person I have no idea. So that's that's research that you just have to do on the spot to see whether it's made out or it's research that you could, for instance, hopefully adjourn off to another hearing if they let you um, and have somebody else review it on your behalf. So certain offences, you build up the knowledge because you deal with them on a daily basis. Certain offences, you don't know the knowledge there and then because you just don't deal with it enough. But you just get some time to just research it into it quickly. And I, I noticed you you said kind of my courtroom. So are you as a barrister kind of designated to, to a particular court or, or how does it work? So in the CPS anyway, you will get deployed to a different court. So for instance, I'm deployable around South London, but I predominantly go to my closest courts, um, like um, the three nearest courts to me um, by time. That doesn't always happen, though. Um, and there are times where you obviously have to go further than that. And if you're at the self-employed bar, you could be deployed anywhere in England, to be perfectly honest. But because I'm at the CPS, I luckily have a few perks of just being deployed to the closest courts to me. And um, within that court, there could be up to maybe 12 courtrooms, uh, all dealing with different things. So one courtroom's dealing with a gap, one's an gap, one's remand, one's trials, one's a youth court. And um, on that particular day, you'll be put into the courtroom that you're deployed to. So I might be deployed to South London Court 1, Gap Court, South London Court 2, the NGAP Court, or South London Court 3, the Remand Court. And you're just deployed to cover that courtroom. Um, you'll also be with a legal advisor who is there to assist you and the magistrates. So magistrates who sit in magistrates' courts, they aren't legally qualified. They are volunteers. They still do make the decisions, but that's why you have the legal advisor to give them advice. And you have prosecution and defence counsel who obviously present both of their arguments and the magistrates adjudicate. So you do share the courtroom with defence, probation services, legal advisors, judges and magistrates. So it all works nicely together. And what's been your your highlight moment so far? You know, is, is there a particular case or a particular moment during your training and work at the CPS where you kind of said... This is why I got into this, or you know, I'm, I'm I'm glad to be where I am. I've had highlight moments, so I think my one of my biggest highlights was doing my first trial, um, because I was just very nervous to do my first trial. Even though you you do elements of trial advocacy in your 
courses once you get to like the bar course or your legal practitioner course for solicitors you do the advocacy but I think it's so much different doing it in actual real life because you have a real witness that you have to control and that you have to ask questions to and I remember doing my first trial I think a few weeks ago and it was um, a assault by beating on an emergency worker and I was scared just because it was obviously my first one (laughs) and he was a very very nice witness but he was very very chatty which means that you have to control him so he just doesn't say things that he's not meant to say or that he's not allowed to say so that was quite scary but I handled it much better than I thought Um, and then I had to give a closing speech and I think I completely forgot I had to do a closing speech I just made it up on the spot (laughs) (laughs) literally just made it up on the spot for a couple of minutes just remembering what I had done and what I had literally just said and got a guilty verdict so I was actually really really impressed with that I was very very happy And I think other highlight moments for me personally is when I deal with cases and we want what's called a remand in custody. So um, if someone pleads not guilty and it's been set off for a trial, they can either be released on bail. um, So they're outside in the community, either without conditions or with certain conditions, or we could ask for them to be remanded into custody until their trial. So they'll be in prison until their trial. And I still find remand applications a bit scary just because depending on the situation, it is quite complex. And yesterday I had a sexual assault case um, where he had com- allegedly committed multiple sexual assaults within like a, a period of two to three weeks. And there was a police officer behind me who really wanted him to be remanded into custody. And I'm like, oh my God, if I fail this, this is quite bad. <laughs> And um, I luckily read through all the evidence. I got as much facts as I could. And um, I got a reminder into custody and the police officer was really, really happy. So I think things like that make me feel really happy because it really does remind me that I'm doing this to support victims and witnesses who are placing a lot of faith in the criminal justice system and who are trying to get the best outcome. And if I'm a part of that in any way possible, it really does make me feel happy. And so those are my highlight moments. Uh, that's amazing kind of the real impact that you can have on the wider community or even on, on just another kind of you know human being's life yeah did you did you always know that you wanted to kind of work for the cps or kind of become a barrister or how did this journey come about um i didn't always know that i wanted to be a barrister i think i first started out wanting to be so many different things when i was a child <laughs> the wheel. literally wanted to be like everything i wanted to be a nurse at one point i wanted to be a teacher um i just wanted to be everything and anything and then as i got further into my studies i my history is my favorite subject and i really wanted to be a historian so my original plan was to study history at university but my mom didn't really agree because she was like what are you going to do afterwards <laughs> so I was like, I don't know. But so she was like, you're really good at English. You know, you're really good at written advocacy. Just do law. And I wasn't opposed to doing it. It just wouldn't have been my first choice. Um, So I ended up studying law. Really, really liked what I did. Um, I was still indecisive about what route to go down. I didn't know if I wanted to be a solicitor or a barrister. I didn't really know the differences. So I didn't know what to do. So I did a master's degree after I finished my undergraduate degree. I was still indecisive about what I wanted to do, but I still knew that I wanted to do law. So then I took a, a year out to just work with students. And I think in working with them, I was telling them to pursue their dreams. And I was kind of like, oh, if you're advising people, you should probably do the same thing and take your advice. <laughs> so I made the last minute decision to do the bar course, knowing that it was going to be hard and knowing that, for instance, obtaining pupillage is very, very hard. It did put me off because I was thinking if I do this course and I don't get pupillage, then it would have been a waste of time. 
but I did it anyway because I thought it was something that I knew at that stage is what I wanted to do and I just wanted to get it out of the way so I, I just did it and luckily secured pupillage so I'm really happy that it, it worked out for me but it wasn't always my first intention and um, in terms of CPS I genuinely didn't know that I wanted to work for the CPS at all I think once I finished my bar course in 20. 19 I think I finished I was just looking for jobs I was just like I need to get a job now (laughs) and I just need something to do and um, (laughs) luckily at the time that I finished the CPS were recruiting for paralegal assistants to work in their crown court and I looked at the job description and it talks about working with victims and witnesses and it talks about being in court on a daily basis and I thought that was something that I liked that was something that I liked the sound of so I applied for it started working for the CPS I'm like oh I really like the atmosphere here I really like what they do I like how as an organisation, they work and they were trying to support people. So then when they recruited for their legal training scheme, I decided to just do it um, and apply. And luckily I got it. <laughs> um, so it was really, really handy. It wasn't always my first choice to work for the CPS. And I think my initial feelings was to go into the self-employed bar because that is just the majority of barristers just become self-employed after they finish. They apply for pupil at the self-employed bar. But I think once I started working for the CPS and I saw the benefits that they had to give, it worked out that I was able to get training with them. So I was really happy that I did. That raises an interesting question, this distinction between self-employed and employed as, as barristers. So would you mind kind of going a bit more into detail into how that changes a, a barrister's life? I mean, previously you said that as a self-employed barrister, you could be sent anywhere around the country, <laughs> whereas, you know, as a barrister at the CPS, you know, you're lucky that it's, you know, within within a certain range. Yeah. I mean, what other kind of qualitative differences are there to kind of your daily lives as barristers? So the self-employed bar, I think, is where the, the majority of barristers go, um, just because that, that was normally the traditional route is that you would go to chambers and everyone at chambers is self-employed. But now you can work at organisations like the CPS or the government legal department. Um, you can also work for law firms as in-house counsel um, and you'll be employed by them. Um, but with the self-employed bar, you are self-employed. So your work is dependent on solicitors instructing you to do cases and your salary is really dependent on the work that you do. So because you're self-employed, your salary obviously fluctuates on a monthly basis. You don't have that stability of income because it really depends on what kind of work you do, how much work you do, how much that work is worth and when your solicitors pay you. Um, because they may not always pay you straight away. They might pay you a couple months after you've done the hearing. So your pay really goes up and down and you don't get that stability of income. Also, because you're a self-employed barrister, Chambers can get work from anywhere. So I have friends at the self-employed bar who live in London, but will have to go to, for instance, Birmingham to do a, a trial or Manchester to do a hearing. And you don't really get a say um, in that process you just need to take what you're given so you could you could really be in you know Bromley one hour and then be asked to go to to Essex the next hour and then come back down to London for another case and you're also responsible for things like your own taxes and all of that kind of HMRC stuff that I don't really know about (laughs) so those kind of things you have to kind of do yourself and you also have to cover what's called I think your own insurance um, because you're self-employed so for instance if anyone wants to bring proceedings against you then you'll need to be insured um, in, in order to do that um, at the employed bar um, some of the benefits for instance at the CPS are that you have a set salary 
So um, I know what comes into my account on a monthly basis. I'm on a set salary per month and there's always the route to progression. So I could start off as one grade with one salary. I could apply for a promotion and that goes up a grade and up a salary. So I still know what I'm going to get per month. Um, I don't have to worry about work because there's always something for me to do. There's always something coming through. So I don't have to necessarily worry about impressing solicitors because there's always going to be work for me to do. There's also things like, you know, paid holidays, paid sick leave, which you won't get at the self-employed bar and all of those things. The only, not necessarily limitations, depending on the person, is that you will only work for that particular organisation and you will only be able to give them legal advice. So as a self-employed barrister, you could specialise in criminal law and employment law and regulatory law and extradition and family law. You can do anything that you like. Whereas me at the CPS, I can only ever do criminal law and I will only ever prosecute, so I will never defend. If you were to, for instance, work at the government legal department, you will only be giving advice to them. Um, you will only be working for them and, you know, you will only be doing their commercial kind of work. So you are restricted to that particular organisation. Um, the self-employed by might give you more opportunities to do other things. So I think depending on the person and the individual, there's obviously a lot of things to choose from when deciding between the employed and the self-employed bar. I mean, I don't know about you, but having guaranteed sick days, holiday days, <laughs> a consistent salary yeah. sounds a lot better than the freedom to practice any area of law I want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so another interesting thing I, I noticed about you telling me about your journey is, is that idea that it was never kind of set from day one and, and that you took some time even after you finished your, your degree. Now, law students now, they're kind of bombarded with thinking about careers, thinking about professional skills development already from kind of year one, such that kind of, you know, people feel that they've got to have something lined up by their third year, uh, by, by their final year, or kind of at least kind of the first year outside of uni, they should already, you know, have their career path. What do you say to people who, who, who feel this, this kind of pressure to get it right the first time, you know, already have everything planned ahead? I would say take your time and do what's best for you because at the end of the day, it's your journey and you need to make sure that you're doing everything on your terms. I personally just didn't know what I wanted to do and I spent a lot of my time kind of going through pro bono work and, you know, just talking to people who were in the legal profession where I could and just doing my own sort of research. And that really, really helped me. And because I didn't do the bar course straight away, I was actually very, very, very happy that I didn't do it. I did it, I think, two or three years after I graduated. And I felt so much better prepared doing it three years after I graduated than if I was to do it straight away. Because the course is so practical, it's so tough, it's very hard, it's very overwhelming, and it's also very expensive. So I, I was very happy that I didn't make that decision to do it straight away. I think for people who are deciding what to do, just make sure to get as much experience as you can along the way. Talk to as many people as you can so you can see what it might be like to do the different things that you're thinking of. Get as much experience as you can so you kind of know what that profession might be like and you know whether you actually want to invest your time and effort into it in the long run because you don't want to have invested so much time and then just turn around and be like, I don't think it's for me anymore. I think honestly take your time and don't feel pressured because there are, for instance, a lot of mature students who come into the legal profession at 30, 40 or even 50. It's never really too late to get in there. Um, so I think just take your time and make sure that it's right for you because this profession is, is, is very tough and exhausting. 
and you don't want to feel rushed or pressured to go into a situation that you might not be able to cope with. So I think it's just all about taking your time, talking to as many people as you can, get as much experience as you can, just to know whether this is really what, what you want to do. Especially kind of the barrister route is notorious amongst kind of, you know, law students as being quite a tough route in comparison to this solicitor route. I mean, you know, self-funding yourself or kind of, you know, applying for scholarships to do the PPTC, then getting kind of, you know, in a chambers or an organization. Has anything been done, you know, in terms of financial kind of mobility to improve the situation? Because, I mean, you, you get reports nowadays that people are crowdfunding in order to fund their BPTC or, or kind of their GDL. They want to become a barrister. And it's a bit saddening that there's that, you know, inequality based on kind of, you know, what profession you want to do in the law. Now, I'm not saying that every profession in the law should pay the same, but I feel that there we should maximize opportunities for people you know especially those that that may not have the same kind of financial security but still want to kind of do work especially criminal law work yeah i think finance is is a very big part of um people pursuing the course i see so many posts on for instance linkedin where people say you know i can't afford to do it this year therefore i'm just going to have to wait until next year to see if i can afford it again next year um and there are so many people who obviously raise the point that they're not from, you know, a very well-off background and their parents can't afford the same education as, for instance, somebody from an Oxbridge education could. And that's where the difference is. The people that can afford it are the same people that are going to stay in the profession and people who genuinely want to but can't afford to are left out of the profession. Um, and there have been some advances um, to securing funding I self-funded mine just because I made a very late and last minute decision to do the bar course. So that was actually my fault. I just did it very late. When I did it, it was £19,050 to do it one year full time. And it was the same price if you did it part time, but you just paid different installments per every six months or so. Um, and I think other universities were about 18500 And I think if you did it outside of London, it was slightly cheaper. I think maybe between fourteen pounds and £16,000, it was slightly cheaper. Um, but it was still expensive nonetheless, because you still have student finance from your undergraduate degree to pay for. So it was still expensive regardless. What has been helpful to a lot of students is applying for scholarships. So if you want to do the BPCC, you have to join one of the four inns of court. Um, so there's Gray's Inn, Middle Temple, Inner Temple and Lincoln's Inn, I think are the four inns of court. And you have to join one of them before you do the bar course. All four inns on an annual basis um, have scholarships for students who want to do the BPTC the upcoming year. Um, and you can apply to them in order to get funding. It is a bit of a tough process. I think there's an initial application form. I think you have to get two references from academics or from people who are senior, things like judges or accountants or something like that. And you, depending on the in, I think you might have to do like a video interview um, etc so you have to fill out an application form and then they will sift it and then if you're successful you get through to the, the interview stage which is quite tough from what I've heard um, it's kind of like a job interview slash a pupillage interview and they want to assess you as an advocate you as a person why are you deserving of this award are you going to actually practice as a barrister in England and Wales so you know are you deserving of this kind of funding 
Um, so it is a bit of a hard process to get a scholarship, but the ones that do get scholarships, it, it really does save them because it, it allows them to do something that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. Um, I know some of the inns offer full scholarships, so they will pay for your funding in full. So they will cover the full 18 or 19,000 pounds. I think some of them offer partial scholarships, so they will give you between three to 5,000 pounds, which helps towards your studies. I think some of them have residential scholarships, which I think allows you to live in the inner court. So that obviously covers your living expenses for the year, um, which is obviously really helpful. I know some of the universities themselves have their own kind of scholarships and funding that you can apply for. So I think BPP had scholarships um, for different kinds of things. For instance, if you were particularly good at pro bono work, you could have applied for a pro bono scholarship and got a couple of thousand pounds towards your fees off. So that was obviously really, really helpful. Um, if you apply for pupillage before you start your bar course and you're successful, you will get your pupillage award or you will get some of your pupillage award in order to cover your fees. Fees. So, for instance, if your pupillage award is £40,000 or £50,000, they will offer you the chance to draw down £10,000-£15,000 to cover your funding. So that's obviously really helpful. But it does mean that you have to get pupillage before you start the bar course. Um, and that's said, pupillage is just really generally hard to get. So there are now different ways for you to get funding and scholarships is the main way. And I think anybody who wants to do the bar course should definitely look into getting scholarship funding from INS. Look into the application process now, see what you need to do and what kind of eligibility criteria that they're looking for. And speak to people who have gotten scholarships in the past so you know what the interview process is like, you know what kind of questions they may ask, you know how to potentially answer some questions and what kind of things they're looking for on your CV. I mean, that sounds like an exhausting process just for a scholarship. But one of the things that you also talked about in terms of mobility was that kind of, you know, educational background and not everyone having kind of the same educational background. Now, as someone who didn't go to a Russell Group University, but kind of, you know, secure pupillage on kind of the, the first application run. Did, did you did you ever feel that, you know, you were you were prejudiced against or a disadvantage because you didn't go to a Russell Group University? Yes. <laughs> yes, because when you start, for instance, applying for things like pupillage, you will typically go on Chambers websites and you will see who are members of Chambers, so who their tenants are and who their pupil barristers are. And every time I went onto a Chambers website, and every time some of my friends went onto websites and you look at the people that are there, you see their profile. So you see where they went to university, what they got, what other things that they've done, like extracurricular activities, what prizes and awards you've got. And it was always very, very common that all of these barristers, unfortunately, went to the same universities or the same types of universities. They got the, the, the same types of degrees. They did the same kinds of things. And I haven't... I know it sounds bad, but I have never seen a barrister that has come from my university on Chambers websites ever. And that does make you feel a bit disheartened because you think if they go for the same kinds of people, then what is the point of me applying? Because I'm just not going to get there. And it, it it is really, really, really disheartening when you see that kind of thing. And I know, for instance, when I was applying for work experience um, opportunities, I wouldn't even be able to apply because my university wasn't in the, the drop down box for me to select. So I, I just really couldn't I couldn't apply because it wasn't an option for me. So I felt disadvantaged because I felt like my university wasn't recognised, even though it's exactly the same degree as an Oxford degree. You know, it's still an LLB law. It's exactly the same. It's just not from the same university. So I felt disadvantaged because it made you think that if you didn't go to a particular type of university that you just weren't going to get the opportunities and experiences. 
And I think it took me a while to just realize that you just had to work around that as best as you could and still trying to get the best experiences that you could from what the what your university just has to offer. Yeah, I mean it's 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 disheartening the the kind of Oxbridge kind of you know circle that, that seems to be, you know, making up the the, the barrister out. And I, I do appreciate kind of that that proactivity and, and I think that's quite inspirational about, you know, it's not about kind of where which university you, you went to, but it's kind of what you do and kind of, you know, how do you how, how do you kind of go forward? How do you kind of build up? So I, I think a lot of students will kind of resonate with that. Another thing that I want to talk about as well, which has been kind of on the news a lot lately, is uh, race relations at kind of the, the courts, the ends of courts, and, and also the kind of the barrister route. So no doubt you will have seen the, the the report that came out, I think about a year ago of the uh, black female barrister who was kind of misidentified as the defendant kind of multiple times. I was wondering kind of from your experience, kind of working at the CPS and kind of having studied the barrister route, do you feel that things are, are kind of changing or improving or, or not? I think they're definitely improving. I think there was always the stigma and there sometimes still is the stigma that, you know, barristers are just typically, you know, older white men or sometimes older white females, but more likely older white men who have gone to Oxbridge, who are raised in a certain area and who speak, you know, absolutely polished English and it was very, very rare that you would see like an ethnic barrister, you know, or an ethnic lawyer or even an ethnic judge. And there was always that stigma for like a really long time. And I think those things put people off applying for like people they judge doing the bar course because they just thought if I don't look like the people that are typically in court, then I'm just not going to get far. Um, I definitely think it's improving because now that I've started going into court a lot more, I can see, you know, there's a lot more ethnic barristers. There's a lot more, you know, black barristers. There's a lot more Asian barristers. There's a lot more, you know, just non-British barristers. There's ethnic judges and and so such and forth. So it's it's definitely getting there. And we have to do compulsory training, I believe. I know at the CPS I have to do things like equality and diversity training and I have to do um, respect training. Um, so I'm always having to keep up to date with um, equality, diversity and um, respect issues. Um, I have friends that work in HMCTS within the court system and they said that they've had to do compulsory race relation training as a result of actually the incident that you just mentioned about that barrister who was mistook for a defendant. I get emails from the Bar Council every couple of days and there's always training about equality and diversity, respect and um, discussing um, BAME issues, so black and minority ethnic issues. So I think there's actually a lot that's been done and it's definitely going forward it still is something I believe can be improved just because there still is always going to be that stigma attached to what the bar was like. And when you go on Chambers websites, you sometimes unfortunately do see that they just all look the same. And, you know, that isn't appealing to prospective pupils who might not be, you know, white or British because they might feel like they're just not going to fit in because they don't see anyone like them on website. So I still do think there can be a lot more to be done to make it as inclusive as possible. But I do think that it's taking steps in the right direction. So a, a progressive kind of, you know, keep on, keep, keep on fighting the yeah. good fight, but things are, yeah. things are progressing. Now, students were coming out of the pandemic. Oh, hopefully, don't, don't, take my, don't take my word for it, but hopefully we'll be coming out of the pandemic soon. What words of inspiration do you have to kind of students and also kind of recent law graduates that are looking to enter the jobs market? I mean, no doubt this last year with the pandemic has has slashed a lot of kind of, you know, internships and and kind of job opportunities and networking opportunities. 
So people might feel kind of what was already a difficult job market, especially for barristers, has become even harder now. Um, just based on kind of your journey and kind of, you know, everything that you've done so far, what, what words of advice would you have to, to people who are a bit afraid of kind of, you know, pursuing their, their dreams of, you know, doing a barrister, but as you said, kind of feel they might not fit in or feel like they don't have the qualifications or might not have the financial security? I think my words of advice would be if it's really what you want to do, then just don't give up. And I think also just be realistically prepared for how hard it could be, because getting into this profession is just very, very hard. And then once you're in the profession, it's still hard. So I think be realistic about the fact that it's hard. It might not be a reflection on you. It's just a process in general. There are so many barristers now who it took them five years to get pupillage. And it's not because they're, they're, you know, they're bad or they're not qualified. It's just because the process is that hard that it, 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 it does, there is so much competition. Um, and, and that's just what it's about. I think in terms of the job market, COVID has affected everything. And I think what I would say is be as proactive as possible as you can. I think so many things are now happening online, like online mooting competitions, online advocacy competitions and online um, workshops with different barristers. Take advantage of all of those things because they just require you to sign up. They don't require you to even physically be there, just, you know, show up on Zoom. So take advantage of all of those things and make sure you put them on your CV um, so people can see what you've done and that you've kept up to date as much as possible um, during COVID. If there's essay competitions going on, which I've seen, then just apply for it. Even if you don't think you will get far, apply because you just really never know where you could be. If you're at a stage where you definitely want to do the bar, apply to an inner court. I think the cost is £100, and so it, it does cost a little bit. But the things that you can get from the inner court is actually really, really helpful. They do have education departments that obviously want to ensure that students have as much experience as possible, like marshalling judges, doing mini pupillages, just interacting with different barristers that are members of the inns of court or coming down to an inn of court to just see what advantages they have. And they also have things like essay competitions and they also offer pro bono activities. So if you can do those things through an inn of court, then definitely think about doing them. Also volunteer. I loved volunteering when I was doing my undergraduate degree because I found it just gave me a lot of basic experience in terms of dealing with people. And being a barrister is just a lot about dealing with people, you know, especially people who are frustrated, angry, upset, all of those things you will have to deal with as a barrister. And I think that don't underestimate volunteering at, for instance, your local legal advice centre or your local food bank or something, because that experience over a long period of time is really beneficial for your CV. Even if it's one hour, one day a week for about a couple of months, you know, the cumulative aspect is very, very beneficial. Um, look into organisations like FRU, which is the Free Representation Unit, um, and you volunteer to take on people's employment and social security cases pro bono. I don't believe you need to be legally qualified. I think as long as you pass the test from the top of my memory, as long as you pass the test and you go through all the respective trainings, then you essentially do what a barrister does. You read their case, you go through their case files, you have conferences with them and with their representatives um, and with the opponent's representatives. And if it ends up going to a tribunal hearing, you will represent them in court as if you, you know, you were an actual barrister. All of those experiences are, are very, very beneficial. Volunteer at places like Advocate, um, the Freedom Law Clinic, and all of those pro bono centres. So get involved in anything that you can do. And also don't underestimate non-legal work. Um, I know a lot of people think that non-legal work is not good, but it, it really is, because it shows that you can 
adapt to different situations that don't require legal thinking but just require other kinds of thinking people that work at tesco's think it's not a good experience but it is because you're dealing with people you're dealing with busy um and demanding situations i can only imagine what it's like to to work in a shop during like boxing day periods it's very 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 manic and um that's something that you can put on your cv you're dealing with customers you're dealing with the clients people are going to be angry at you for returning things and all of that kind of stuff so don't underestimate your non-legal work experience as well because that is very very vital and beneficial well that was quite a lot of information and i'm i'm, I'm sure that kind of you know all law students will, will, will benefit definitely from all those not only kind of the types of skills but also all the um all the examples that you've indicated before we kind of end off this interview, we've gone through the inspirational, we've gone through the informative. Now, I always like to end on a lighthearted note. So we've talked about kind of perception of, of prosecution. What is your favorite dramatized legal character on TV or movies and why? Um, I think my absolute favorite has to be Harvey Specter from Suits. <laughs> I mean, he's a classic. He's, he's undeniably kind of a catch. So I can definitely see the, the attraction of, of his... His, his suave uh, way of kind of handling the law. He's absolutely amazing. I think he's my favourite because, I mean, first of all, British and US law is just completely different. And what happens in their courtrooms can never happen in a UK courtroom. It just absolutely <laughs> just doesn't. You just do it. You can never do it. But I think he's my favourite because even though it's very unrealistic, because I work in court and I know how we just don't do that, <laughs> I like to see the fact that he's very confident. He's not afraid to make decisions. He fights for his clients in the best way possible and he thinks on his feet and he thinks outside of the box. Those are the kind of things that you obviously need to do in like the actual profession. <laughs> so I think I like the way he deals with people, the way he doesn't take anything from anyone. And he's very, very focused on his profession and he sees the good in people as well, which is what I really like. So he's actually my favourite dramatised legal character on TV. <laughs> No, quite, quite an insight. And especially as you were saying before, kind of having to think on the spot, uh, I can, I can see why, why, why he's your ideal in terms of kind yeah. of dramatized legal character. <laughs> You've got to get that kind of, you know, on the spot impromptu thinking that Harvey does. <laughs> so thank you so much for Jade for, for coming onto the podcast today. I've had a lovely conversation and I think, and I hope that the audience will have gotten as much as I have. If any of our listeners want to reach out to you and ask questions, can they? And if so, how? Absolutely. They absolutely can. You can reach me on LinkedIn. It's under my full name, so I'll spell it for you. <laughs> it's J-A-D-E-S-O-L-A and then space S-O-D-I-P-O, which is my full name. So you can reach me on LinkedIn um, and I'll be more than happy to answer any questions that anyone has. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jade. Once again, have a good day. Thank you so much. You too. Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed learning about the Crown Prosecution Service and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Jade. We've linked a LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Special thanks to our unsung heroes of the week, Claire Herberg, for editing and producing the episode, and Matt Gedrich for the absolute bang of theme song. Now, we want to hear from you, the audience. What areas would you like us to explore? What topics would you like us to brew up? Give us a shout out on our social media platforms at LegalTea.uk or send us an email at hello at LegalTea.uk and spill us your tea. Till next time. Mm-hmm.